0: This is the Heritage Radio News, bringing you top food stories from down the street and around the world with your Heritage Radio News team, Erica Wads, Patrick Martins, Jack Kinsley on sports, and Mike Edison on weather. All right, welcome to the Heritage Radio News. we got the skeleton crew here today. I'm sitting in the anchor's chair, and next to me is Rachel, the producer, who's actually sitting in for me in the co-anchor chair, where I've been sitting in, for Patrick Martins, who isn't here, and also Erica Wides this week is on the disabled list. Erica, if you're listening, disabled list is a sports term. That means uh, (laughs) you're going to be on the bench for a while. Anyway, um, get, uh, get well soon to Erica, and let's get started with the news. And Rachel, let's hear our top story,
1: please. All right. Thanks, Mike. Although a walk through Times Square might indicate otherwise, Americans are actually eating a somewhat healthier diet. In fact, a new study finds that more than half of Americans were eating healthier in 2012 than they were in 1999, and the percentage of adults with poor diets has dropped from 56% to 46% during that time period. In 2012, people started eating more whole grains, fruits, nuts, seeds, and fish while cutting back on sugar-sweetened drinks. However, disparities still persist in the quality of diet based on race or ethnicity, education, or income. Among whites, those with a poor diet decreased from 54% to 43%, but little change was seen among blacks, Mexican-Americans, and Hispanics, or so the findings showed. In fact, the disparities may have widened slightly based on income due to the economic downturn. Additionally, Americans in 2012 weren't eating more total fruit and vegetables, and they were still consuming too much processed meat, saturated fat, and salt. Research, researchers said that each year, more than 650,000 Americans die from conditions related to diet. The study was led by Dr. Darush Mazafarian, dean of the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy in Boston. Nearly 34,000 adults took part in the U.S. National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys between 1999 and 2012, where people were, more at, were asked about their diets. The data shows that Americans overall are drinking less soda and more bottled water and are eating slightly more whole grains. Mazafarian said that improving America's diet goes beyond what people can do uh, by themselves. The government industry and advocacy efforts are needed to improve many aspects of our food systems, in particular to further promote uh, minimally processed, healthier foods and reduce refined grains, starches, and sugary drinks. Programs and policies that change the, quote, food environment instead of concentrating on more detailed labels and food education programs are more effective in the long run. Mazzafarin continued, quote, "...like we've done for health and safety, like we've done for car safety, or like we've done for water and sanitation, we need system approaches to improve the food system. We do it for almost every other product, but we don't do it for food." The result of this study is a tiny glimmer of optimistic hope for the country, as we rank number one in global obesity, followed by China and India. This is not really something to be proud of, though.
0: Word number one. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm absolutely all for taking um, soda machines out out of schools, changing the food environment, as you said. I think Michelle Obama's done a great job. Of course, a lot of people always say, don't tell me what I can eat. Don't tell me what my kids can eat and drink. But I think, absolutely. Um, You know, programs... And like what Alice Waters has done in schools as well mm-hmm. and programs to garden and you know, bring really right from the farm to the classroom really is gonna make a great great impact.
1: Right. But it's not just education programs. Um- We should uh, appeal to American ideals of laziness and just kind of provide them healthy food with no alternatives, and that's the best way to do it.
0: (laughs) Appeal to the laziness. Well, how Puritan of you, uh, (laughs) Rachel. Um, Or
1: busyness.
0: (laughs) um, All right. Well, let's uh, move. Actually, we're going right back to China, but this time we're going via the Hollywood Action Department. We actually have a Hollywood Action Department. Um, Former California governor. And has-been action star Arnold Schwarzenegger has teamed up with James Cameron. You remember him, the director of Terminator, Titanic, and other small feature films. They have a new YouTube video created by WildAid and paid for by the Chinese government, promoting less meat and less heat. Somehow, um, they got... The Chinese government hired Schwarzenegger and James Cameron to get on board with this um, for both health reasons and to curb global warming. Uh, Arnold says, uh, in slightly broken English, I'm slowly getting off meat and I feel fantastic. Cameron has actually been a long-term advocate of veganism. And he asks in the video, how can I call myself an environmentalist when I'm contributing to environmental degradation by what I eat? No comment about the aesthetics of the culture, which he is degrading um, <laughs> with that, those last few pictures. Cameron continues: meat and dairy are not good for your body. They are not good for your. They are not good for your body. What China is doing, um, trying to reduce meat consumption, that is a leadership position. And it's true: the Chinese eat more pork per capita than even Americans, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. In fact, China now accounts for half of global consumption and production of pork. Um, according to a new report from the USDA, and pork imports have been growing at an annual rate of 150%. China is among the nearly 200 countries also that have committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions at the Paris conference. Now, given the role agriculture plays in producing gas emissions, um, there's now a new global conversation about ways to promote sustainable diets to lead towards preventing climate change, which I think is a very healthy thing as well. And while the voices of Schwarzenegger. And Cameron have lent weight to the campaign, according to one expert at least, Jeremy Haft, who's an expert in China and the author of Unmade in China, The Hidden Truth About China's Economic Miracle. It's very unlikely Chinese will pay attention. I'm guessing it doesn't help that uh, Arnold and um, Cameron don't speak Mandarin. Haft told NPR the guidelines are merely suggestions and basically unenforceable. All indicators point to the continued steep growth in China's demand for meat. Um, I suppose you can take the Terminator's advice or leave it. Honestly, I don't know that I would take anything that Arnold Schwarzenegger says seriously. But reducing meat consumption is, in fact, a very important step for both health and ecological reasons. I just wonder why it took the Chinese government to create these ads, and does Donald Trump know about this?
1: Why did they pick Arnold Schwarzenegger to do the ads? Is he as popular in China as David Hasselhoff is in Germany? <laughs> I, I think, I think
0: the, uh, the Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, is popular everywhere. He did a lot of... Um, I, I mean, I'm in no way confusing our, our Asian brethren in China and Japan, but he, you know, he's done a lot of things in Asia. He's done Asian noodle commercials and stuff. Yeah, I I mean, he's, I he's a global star, as is uh, James Cameron. But it does seem a little weird.
1: Yeah, it definitely seems weird. And also, I don't, I didn't know that James Cameron was doing anything humanitarian. He usually just spends his money did, going on like ocean Exploration and going into space. That's good. That's space good. Is good. No, I meant by himself.
0: <laughs> um, just all for right. fun, we,
1: just to say you can.
0: Well, you know, I think it's great just because, you know, here are these two guys who really, I mean, like the most macho guys. Everything about them is like bigger than life and they're promoting veganism, and I think that's a good thing. Um, all right, we're going to take a short break and we're going to be back with our fast food minute. This is the Heritage Radio News.
2: Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com.
0: All right, we're back. Heritage Radio News. This is Mike Edison sitting in for Erica Wides, who is sitting in for Patrick Martins. Uh, and we're streaming live from Bushwick in Brooklyn. And now it's time for our Fast Food Minute. And such a skeleton crew, we are. we've we even got the interns working uh, for us. So our first Fast Food uh, Minute today is going to be from our friend and talented intern, Opie Omajoli. What have you got for us? Thank you. As if Times Square hasn't been Disney-fied M&M to death by now, Kellogg's is hammering the final nail into that touristy sanitized coffin. The cereal giant announced this week that it has opened a cereal cafe in Times Square, featuring giant bowls of its sugar-packed products with added fun items like candies and flavorings, all topped with either milk or ice cream. Celebrity pastry chef Christina Tosi is involved, obviously, as she is the queen of cereal flavored milk desserts. The bowls of diabetic deliciousness will cost between six and eight dollars and come with a free insulin injection. <laughs> I, I think that I think that's great. And I do love the cereal flavored milkshakes that she makes. I, I really do. You know, you get like a Fruit Loop flavored. Milkshake, uh, and then you put like a shot of espresso in it, and that's called breakfast. That which is scary. why we're number one in obesity, I suppose. I'm going to spoil um,
1: your fun by telling you that all the Fruit Loops are the same flavor.
0: <laughs> oh, oh! <laughs> it's just like a Jedi mind trick. They're different colors. I, I believe that too. I believe that. What, what, it's like, what color is... What flavor is blue? You know, that, that you know, the ice same,
1: and, The same flavor as
0: purple. Yeah, exactly. I just... I, just, I call it Smurf flavor. <laughs> um, okay, well, I got some good news for a change. Um, certain Barnes and Nobles are going to start serving booze. Books and booze. Two of my favorite things all at once. This is a great concept and... They're going to be starting in East Chester, New York, Edina, Minnesota, Folsom, California, and Luton, uh, Virginia. Um, They're all affluent suburbs, so uh, take that as you will. This is reported on Eater.com, but I think this is great. There are some wonderful boutique bookstores, I know, um, that do have bars, wine bars usually, and books. And I think um, it's it's, it's good. I think booze and books go together. It's hard to read, but it's uh, easy to talk and uh, discuss ideas once uh, in vino veritas is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) <laughs> okay, do we have another fast food minute coming up? Yet? Oh
1: yeah, we have one from uh Dave the producer. Um t- sorry, Dave oh. the engineer.
3: <laughs> oh, I got a I got a promotion. Is that what's happening?
1: Yeah, so you're sitting in for me cuz I'm sitting in for Erica and uh who's sitting in for Patrick and and Mike's
3: around for, we go. Oh it's like a game of shooting and ladders here. Yeah. All right. Well, I have a story for you guys. Uh, So from getting company logos tattooed on arms to sending Twitter love letters, consumers are always looking for new ways to get food companies to give them freebies. Well, a burger chain in Australia is giving you just that chance. Mr. Burger, a company with storefronts and food trucks, is offering to give customers free burgers for life if they change their last name to Burger by July 31st. Now, it doesn't count if your name is already Burger, or Burger, B-E-R-G-E-R, but Mr. Burger says it will give a few vouchers to those already blessed with the food-based name. The company told The Telegraph that it wanted to lighten the news a little bit after the Brexit and the extreme weather, which Mike can tell us more about later. No word what McDonald's will do for people already surnamed Fry.
0: Seems a little unfair if your name's already Burger. Uh, you know, I think people think burgers should be a protected class. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, that's it for Rachel's gesticulating.
1: Well, speaking of uh, strange foods, uh, the 90s included strange experiments with the commercial beverages from the high sea green slime ecto cooler, which, by the way, has already come back. Also, to the colored sugar water that was Mondo. Remember, remember uh, Crystal Pepsi, the clear cola Pepsi thought would be totally rad? Do you remember it fondly? No, well, Pepsi clearly thinks that you do because it's bringing it back this summer to prove that the 90s are alive and well when maybe parts of it should just stay dead. The campaign trail for the soda is on full swing, including a computer game that's a weird parody of Oregon Trail called Crystal Pepsi Trail because it's a really good idea to market a beverage with a game most associated with dysentery.
0: Oh my goodness gracious, that's just awful. I do remember Crystal Pepsi and all sorts of uh, you know ideas like you know just you take the color out and of course like you're saying the Fruit Loops all taste the same. Yeah. But um, I'm not willing to drink a cola that's not. Cola
1: no, uh, full disclosure. My father worked for Pepsi in the '90s, and he and he looks back on Crystal Pepsi, and he's like, "Oh my God, what did we do?
0: B- big mistake." I used to actually be in the beverage business as well. I was a reporter. I was a editor at Bever- Beverage World, which is a trade magazine right, yeah. for uh, soft drinks uh, industry. And boy, uh, <laughs> you see these products come and go. I like that lemon flavored. Uh, Coke, they had for a while, though, or was it Pepsi? It was a Pepsi. It was Pepsi Twist. Pepsi Twist, no, it was before your time. It was long before your time. This was a. Set. It was like a post-tab thing. It probably was like loaded with uh, artificial sweeteners. But um, I do do like a slice, do like a slice, slice of lemon in my Coca-Cola. All right, that's uh, that's it for our fast uh, food uh, moment. I think we're going to take an, another break. Is, is that right, someone? <laughs> yes, we're
1: going to take another break. Okay,
0: we're going to take another break. And we're going to be back with uh, more good stuff here at the Heritage Radio News. Hi there. I'm Greg from Kapow. Visit us at kapow.com to check out our
2: unique collection of everyday reusable products designed to help you do more with less. C-U-P-P-O-W dot
0: All right. Welcome back to the Heritage Radio News. Here we are in Bushwick streaming live. And our next story, here's Rachel.
1: Oh, okay. Well... Uh, think about the greatest heists in criminal history and epic stories of stolen artwork. A daring jewel theft or a missing Monet has come to mind. But lastly, uh, but lately, large-scale robberies are more likely to be of wheels of cheese rather than the custom wheels off a Ferrari. According to the latest data from Freight Watch International, food and drink heists make up 27% of all cargo theft. That accounts for more than stolen electronics, pharmaceuticals, and auto parts combined. That number is growing rapidly, up 34% from 2014. And these food heists are becoming more daring and more ridiculous each year. For instance, there are the news making stories on the theft of luxury items like caviar and Cabernet. However, more common have been major heists on items like frozen chicken wings, 400 pounds of marinated kebab meat, or half a million dollar walnut job. Add that to the six million pound maple syrup raid in Canada, obviously, and large scale food theft is starting to look like a large scale problem. The draw for criminals is that stakes are comparatively low. Unlike money or electronics that have itemized serial codes, it's more difficult to trace food that has been stolen. And the penalties can almost be non-existent. Rocky Pipkin, a private detective based in Visalia, California, says criminals get, quote, a slap on the wrist, even if thieves get caught, and very few have gotten caught. Unless the feds get involved, and rope up all the people facilitating the transport of large quantities, then it's grand theft. According to Pipkin, that translates to, quote, no time in in jail in California, or at least very little. Storage and food handling safety isn't a huge concern for many of these petty criminals, either, making these food black markets a possible hazard for consumers' health. Uh, To no one's surprise, law enforcement agents have found that food waiting to be sold on the black market isn't usually stored in the proper conditions, especially if you have like a special cheese that needs that special cheese wrapper. Uh, Pipkin explains, uh, quote, we caught a guy who had stolen a load of orange juice and he had just left it lying around in his garage. Consumers who turned up buying stolen goods can get seriously ill. And don't think you can just get a good deal deal on walnuts on eBay. Uh, Pipkin believes that many of the syndicate's members conducting overseas brokerages are, in, are industry insiders who won't leave a trail when sealing a deal. Quote, they have either been in the business or could even be legitimate business persons to an extent. They're already brokering fruits and nuts to folks and everything looks legit. They know how it works, and they know who to contact. Mike Bor- uh, Mark Bordereau, a sh- local sheriff of Tulare County, California, said of the nut heists, quote, This is an organized syndicate, and they're very well versed in the trucking industry, cargo industry, and the agricultural community. We have lost millions of dollars, and it impacts the farm laborers, the farming communities, community stores, families. I think it's an economic act of terrorism. It impacts us fiscally at so many levels. Also, they're stealing uh, avocados in New Zealand,
0: I'm really That's fascinated by the great walnut job. I, I actually hijacked a pizza once. This is a true story. It was just I was just in my building, and someone, had a delivery guy, had a pizza. and I said, "Oh, um, whose apartment is that for?" And then I lied and said it was for me, and I paid the guy. So you
1: didn't steal it. You I did. Paid well, I, for I did well, I
0: hijacked it because now the guy who wanted to get the pizza didn't get his pizza, and I'm sure 20 minutes later he called this pizza shop, who's saying, "I don't get it. You paid for it." But. That was in a mood. I'm,
1: I'm sure it wasn't. A huge All right. Loss. a right, just the loss of.
0: <laughs> I hijacked time. pizza. That's it. That's that's my that's my, my food and crime story. <laughs> um, <laughs> my hot pizza. Everybody likes a hot pizza.
1: Well, speaking of hot pizza, it's hot out there, isn't it, Mike? Oh,
0: nice segue. Let's hit it with the weather. Oh, I love that sound.
1: Going you know, off
0: the rails on a crazy train. <laughs> I just have to make this the segue here from uh, anchor person to weather, weather uh, propped up on air weather person. I'm going to move
1: to a slightly different chair.
0: I'm not a real meteorologist, you know. In the last weeks, we've talked about tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, droughts, heat waves, and rained out ball games, bummer after bummer. Well, this week, you'll be glad to hear I have more bad news. Rising temperatures mean thousands could die from heat exposure in the Big Apple by 2080 if greenhouse gas emissions aren't reduced, says a new study. There's always a new study. The show I've been noticing is very big on (laughs) new studies, but in this case, scientists scientists from Columbia University examined temperature related deaths in New York City and found that more than 3,000 people could die each year by 2080 if efforts aren't made to reduce greenhouse emissions and adapt to rising temperature. The study was published. In the Environmental Health Perspectives Journal, which I'm sure you subscribe to, Rachel. Absolutely. And it is used by New York City. Uh, We have our very own panel on climate change. Now, as reported by the New York Post, New York City usually has about two major heat waves per summer. And Kinney, one of the authors of the report, said we could be seeing as many as five to seven by the 2050s. He called the potential rates of death alarming and said lawmakers already know what they need to do to fix this. Quote, we know what to do. It's just a matter of motivating decision to um, make the right to do the right thing if city workers had to protect the population we could avoid that things like assisting people with air conditioning helping them afford the air the energy for air conditioning and if you ask me well that's just attacking the symptom and not the disease fixing an air conditioner is not really the solution to this problem Mm -hmm. the biggest culprits in new york city climate change are by the way not taxis and buses but skyscrapers Uh, Energy used for heating and cooling is the biggest component of greenhouse emissions in the city, said the study. Uh, Not surprising, of course, the next level of uh, perpetrator is the internal combustion engine. But no amount of hybrid buses are ever going to solve this problem. I promise you, it is just not going to do it. If you're driving a Prius, we have to make bigger changes. Personally, I think Manhattan should be a pedestrian zone. That's it. Commercial traffic only. And the tolls on the incoming bridges should be about $500 for a car that only has one passenger. But apparently, these are not proposals that are going to be uh, catching on any Time soon with uh, the Oi here in New York City.
1: Oh, yeah. We have a lot of uh, skyscrapers here. At least we don't have. Um, I thought you were going to talk about that skyscraper in England that literally melts cars because of the angle that it reflects the sun off onto the sidewalk. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the opposite of cool, actually. All Very right. hot.
0: <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break when we come back. We've got Jack Ginsley out on the road somewhere. He's going to do sports. Yep. We'll be right back after this.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit HeritageFoodsUSA.com. All
0: right, we're back, and that music can mean only one of two things. <laughs>
1: It's so about
0: to get bouncy in here. Ah, I think it means sports, actually. Um. <laughs> All right.
2: Let's hear it. Jack Inslee, what have you got for us? All right. Well, as much as it pains me to do, I will put aside my NBA fanaticism for one moment here and shift focus back to the Rio Olympics, which are right around the corner. What tastes sweeter than victory? Not much except maybe the food of your native country. Well, in 2012, the London Olympics created some controversy amongst Indian athletes for a lack of proper vegetarian and native food. Thankfully, things will be different at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio, and not just for India. According to India Today, India's chef de mission for Rio Olympics, Rakesh Gupta, on Wednesday said the Olympics organizing committee confirmed Indian food would be provided to the athletes during the competition. He said that the association was very much concerned with the kind of food to be available for the athletes and has confirmed that Indian food will be available in the Games Village. Athletes from Singapore... Headed to Brazil for the 2016 Games in August will also have a comforting taste of home as they will have access to local food throughout the competition, according to Channel News Asia. At Singapore House, right near the official Olympic Village, the athletes can get services and support as they would in Singapore, Sports Singapore said in a media release on Tuesday. This includes the likes of a Singapore Sports Institute physiotherapist, biomechanist, sport trainer or dietitian, as well as a spread of local food. Dr. Richard Swinburne, head of senior sport dietitian in Singapore Sports Institute, says, we've put together a menu that is not only nutritious and beneficial for our athletes, but one that will provide a taste of home and satisfy that local food craving. Pan Pacific Singapore executive sous chef Elson Chiang and a team of dietitians at the SSI have created and curated this menu. There will be 88 menu items featured in Singapore House, including chicken rice, sweet and sour fish and Singapore laksa. If only American sports stadiums would offer such international culinary delights. Back to you guys.
0: All right. Well, I think oh, wow. we're well on our way. You reported before, Jack, on a trend towards all sorts of crazy, crazy food at uh, at the ballparks this year. It's not just uh, beer and hot dogs. Okay. We're going to come back with an op-ed. Um, I think finally we have some good news. We'll be back after this.
1: This piece was brought to you by Roberta's. Roberta'sPizza.com. com. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to the Skeleton Crew edition of the Heritage Radio News. And this week, we uh, re- reading um, a very, 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 very important op-ed
3: is uh, Dave the Engineer. Go for it, dude. All right. Thanks, Mike. Well, today is National Ice Cream Soda Day. Woo-hoo! Did you buy yourself a sweet treat today? Or maybe a local float from an artisanal local ice cream maker? Or if you don't have an artisanal ice cream maker around the corner, did you at least buy some ice cream and soda from the supermarket? Did you forget all about National Ice Cream Soda Day? Bad foodie. But don't worry. Tomorrow is National Creative Ice Cream Flavor Day. You don't only eat vanilla ice cream, right? Why would you when there's a whole spectrum out there? Salted caramel, lavender, taro, rocky road. Mm, I think I'll buy some right now. You know, my month is actually looking pretty busy. July 3rd is National Eat Beans Day, and the 4th is Caesar Salad Day, and then on the 5th it's Apple Turnover Day. Yes, these are all real, and we haven't even made it a week into July. When does a national food holiday lose all significance? Maybe when there became literally 365 of them. Look, I love celebrating foods as much as anybody. I would love to eat three Caesar salads in a row but I'm not going to let PR companies and big food industries tell me what to eat and when. What's next? A foodie Black Friday with people lining up around the corner of their closest faux boutique grocery store to get limited edition craft singles that their kids demand because there have been Facebook ads for the past month? Think for yourself, people. When April 18th rolls around and Twitter hashtag National Macaroni Day tweets start rolling around with nostalgia-based ads asking you to remember the craft food in a box and school lunches, tune it out. Go about your day. Continue to eat good food, food you love because you want to, not because big media is telling you to. That being said... I kind of have a hankering for root beer float. I guess they got me this time. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm about. Now I really want a root I can't, beer I, I float. Can't, I can't. I don't even wait. like root beer. I can't. Well, we don't like root beer. Yeah. You don't like root beer? No. You know, been, Do you not like America?
1: <laughs> well, speaking of America I, I already have been like dissing it all day, so no. How could, speaking of America, how could July 4th be
0: Caesar Salad Day? I mean, seriously, WTF
3: dude. That seems like uh, a mixed okay, message there, okay? Right? okay. I mean
0: it's Caesar it's Salad hot hot isn't even America. an American thing. Like okay. I I mean I mean I mean seriously.
1: Can you name me one American food that's American? Aside from American cheese.
0: One American food that's American, pizza. Pizza. <laughs> it's um, leftover Chinese food. <laughs> yeah. It's American. all American. When's White Castle Day? Uh, all right. Well, thanks very much, Dave, and thanks, everybody. Thanks, Opie, uh, the intro for coming through today. I uh, hope Erica gets better soon. I need you here in this chair, please. Rachel, the producer, thank you, Dave, in the booth. And uh, please uh, don't forget, you can uh, reach out to us if you have stories, tips, um, or just uh, looking for a babysitter, please email us at info at Heritage Radio dot org. info at Heritage Radio dot org. We'd love to hear from you, and don't forget, Heritage Radio Network is member-supported, so if you're tuned in on your Internet machine, please click the button that says donate or be a member. I promise you it is a world without pain. We'll see you next week for Outrage Radio News. This is Mike Edison. See ya.